Open with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Zechariah chapter 7. We are coming into Christmas time, and the people expect a Christmas sermon, and so a Christmas sermon you shall get from Zechariah 7 and 8. Because one of the wonderful parts about Christmas is thinking through the gifts that we give, right? And there is no more sinking feeling than moving into a last-minute time period where you know that you have to get a gift and you've forgotten. And those are the times when you got to get the gift and the time has run out and you can't really put your mind into it that the card shows up with the gift card inside and the hastily scribbled note. And guys, am I right? Nothing says happy anniversary like a $25 Visa gift card, right? <laughs> That's not good. How do we give gifts that are acceptable? How do we give gifts that aren't only acceptable, that, but that people will cherish? Well, it involves knowing and responding rightly to that person, and on an infinitely, eternally more significant scale, how do we offer to God gifts that are acceptable, sacrifice that is acceptable? How do we return what is acceptable and pleasing to the Lord? That's actually what we come to in Zechariah 7 and 8. So providentially, God has placed us in a wonderful passage for us to consider as we come into this season of gift giving. So if you're not there already, find your way to Zechariah chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 to start our time together. This is what God's word says. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regem Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of the hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we see people ask a question. Should we do what we've always done? And is that pleasing to God? Lord, we're a people that are quick to fall into habits, and many of those are good and wonderful. We're a people of tradition, and again, many of those are good and helpful. But Lord, worship is not a tradition. We recognize that worship is not memory. Worship is not habit. Worship is a heart response to you. And Lord, we need you to change our hearts and draw us to worship. And so Lord, we ask as we come before your word that you would open our eyes so that we would behold wonderful things from that word. We pray that you would so shine your truth on us that it leaves us not only intellectually more aware, but God, that it leaves us transformed at a heart level. Lord, help us to respond to your word, to your truth, to the reality of who you are with the worship of obedience. We need your help to do that. And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we open up chapter 7, uh, we have to understand that time has passed. We went through eight night visions that all happened in one night. We went through this kind of uh, ceremonial crowning of the high priest that probably happened shortly after that. And we turn the page, and only a week has passed for us. You have to understand that two years have passed for the people of Israel. That remnant gathered together in Jerusalem has now been working on that temple for two years. They've been moving in obedience for two years. And you have to think that with every brick, with every line that goes up on the temple, there's this anticipation starting to build. Growing excitement kind of as you can see the structure going up. And as that temple begins to take shape, and in two years from now, it will be complete. Two years later, in the month of December, again, right around this time of year, the people of Bethel send a delegation to ask a very particular question. And the people come with a problem, a question about fasting. 
And so let's open up this passage, and let's look first at verse 2 at the people's question. Verse 2, now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regem Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord. Now, not only are there two great baby names in there, but there's another encouraging thing there, uh, because what do we know about Bethel up to this point? We've read through uh, the minor prophets. We've worked through the maps. We've talked about the history of the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah, and Bethel has never been a positive in all of that. Bethel was that town in the southern part of the northern kingdom where they had set up an alternate worship site. Remember that, two golden calves, one at Dan and one at Bethel, and the design was to keep the people in the northern kingdom from coming down to Jerusalem to worship. And so they set up those alternate worship sites, and they said, you can worship there, you don't have to go back. Of course, the Lord never accepted that worship. It was always an idolatrous abomination to him. But now we see that people from Bethel have come to Jerusalem to seek the favor of the Lord, and there's uh, something that the Babylonian exile kind of cured among the people. Never again do we see Israel so drawn to external idolatry. Internally, absolutely still a wicked and idolatrous people. But that external idolatry, God's discipline really did purge them of. You see kind of one of those blessings and benefits of God's discipline in the lives of the people. And that's a simple thing that we could read over really quickly. Um, but never forget that the discipline of the Lord produces good in the lives of his people even though it doesn't purge them completely here. And when they come, they ask a question. They say, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? What they're asking is if they should keep a fast that was set up in the fifth month as they had been doing since the beginning of the exile. See, under the law, according to the law, there was only one sacrifice, or I'm sorry, only one fast for the people, and that was through the Day of Atonement. But as Israel's history played out, and in particular, as Jerusalem and Judah were overthrown by Nebuchadnezzar under Babylon, as they endured that national tragedy, they had added several feasts to their calendar. In chapter 8, one more chapter over, verse 19, you see that they had actually added four additional fasts, one in the fourth month, one in the fifth month, one in the seventh month, one in the tenth month. And they commemorated these different, really tragic events that were related to the captivity. The fast in the fourth month uh, reminded the people of the day when the walls were broken through. The fast of the fifth month reminded the people of the time when the temple was burned to the ground. The fast of the seventh month was the commemoration of the assassination of the governor, Gedaliah. And the fast of the tenth month was a reminder of when Nebuchadnezzar had started the siege of Jerusalem. So there are these four painful historical markers in the lives of the people, and that what they had done over the period of the exile was they had turned these into fast days, into days of national mourning that kind of look back and remember these tragic events. And so uh, these men from Bethel come, and they ask a question on behalf of all the people, and it's, should we keep doing these things? Traditionally, we have done these things to remember that time. Is it okay? Is it pleasing to the Lord that we continue to do those things? And I'm guessing that they anticipated a fairly straightforward yes or no answer. I think they were probably expecting either yes, do those things. It's a reminder of God's hatred of sin. It's a reminder of the cost of sin. It's a reminder of God's discipline. So keep doing that. Or maybe they expected a no. I mean, you're back from captivity. God has dealt with you, but now he's moved you toward restoration. Stop living in the past. I think they anticipated one of those two answers. But what God does instead is the Lord asks them a question. And it's not what they would anticipate. And let's look then at the Lord's question. 
He says in verse 5, say to all the people of the land and the priests. So Bethel sends the delegation, but the answer is for the land and the priests, for everybody. He says, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for those 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Here's the pointed question that God asks, why do you do what you do in the first place? When you fast, was it for you or was it for me? How do you fast for yourself? Well, in the same way that you do any religious action for yourself. You can fast so that other people see you, so that other people are impressed by your devotion, by your holiness, by your uh, set-apartness. You can fast so that you don't feel as guilty about sin that you're living in. You can fast because somehow you think it ticks a box that moves up your status with God, that somehow it makes you more likable. You can be sincere and sacrificial in seemingly good things, but you can do them for all the wrong reasons. You can do religious things, and they wind up being eternally worthless. And that's what God drives them back to. That it is not merely about the external act, but that God has always looked at the heart behind these things. When you fast, he says, ultimately, it was for you. And not only that, when you eat and when you drink, it was ultimately for you. See, whether you fasted or whether you feasted, your problem, guys, is that you're doing it for you and that it really has nothing to do with me at all. And then God asks a further question. He says, were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with their cities around her in the south and the lowland were inhabited? In other words, guys, this isn't the first time you've heard this, is it? And it wasn't. If you look back over the history of Israel, this is a constant theme of what God says. 1 Samuel 15, 22, dealing all the way back with Saul and their first king. He says, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. We read out of Isaiah 58 this morning to begin our service, and there's that warning that God doesn't hear his people when their hearts are continually far from him. Remember, they were saying, well, why do we keep fasting and you don't listen? Why do we keep praying and you're not answering us? And the answer is your hearts were never in it to begin with. We hear that again in Jeremiah 14, 12. We've heard it in the Minor Prophets in Amos chapter 5, verse 21. Amos wrote, God said, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. And it's not just an Old Testament concept. We went through Matthew over the course of a couple few years together. Matthew chapter 6, in that Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus say? He talked about praying. He talked about giving. He talked about fasting specifically. When you fast, do it in secret. When you give, do it in secret. When you pray, don't do it so people will hear. In other words, don't practice your religion for anything other than being obedient and pleasing to God. Does the process matter? Absolutely it does. The people were called to bring the right sacrifices in the right way at the right time through the right priesthood. And all of that mattered. But none of that begins and ends in the external carrying out of those actions. It all started with the heart. The heart was what was supposed to drive their obedience and their worship the whole time. And that brings us to the Lord's requirement. That's the people's 
question. That's the Lord's question as he responds to them. But what's the Lord requirement? So the question is, what does God want? What does God expect? That's a valid question, not only from them. What does God expect from them? But what does God want from us? Does it matter what they do? If it's not ultimately about the feasts and the festivals and the sacrifices, then does it matter what they do at all? Does it matter what we do? And of course it does. Look at what he says starting in verse 8. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. What does God want? He wants obedience. What does that look like? Jesus said the two greatest commandments were what? Love God and love your neighbor. That's it. You can owe obedience down to those two things. Love God and love others. Be just because God is just. Show kindness and mercy because God has poured out his kindness and his mercy on you. Don't take advantage of the needy, the weak, and the oppressed because God saw you and took notice of you in your weakness, in your slavery, in your oppression. In other words, be a transformed people who look like the God who called you to be a nation in the first place. Because the reality is you cannot worship a just God while you are being unjust. You cannot worship a merciful, kind God while you are withholding kindness and mercy. You cannot worship a forgiving God while you refuse to forgive. You cannot worship a God of kindness and compassion and care while you actively take advantage of and oppress other people. You can do all kinds of religious things, but you cannot worship while you refuse to live in obedience. And once again, this isn't brand new revelation that kind of overhauls or overshadows the law. This isn't God changing his mind. Verse 11, he says, your fathers all knew this, but they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and they stopped up their ears so they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations that they had not known. And the land was left desolate so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. What's God saying? Failing to do this is what got your fathers removed from the land in the first place. How's that for a warning? If you're not careful, you will follow in the footsteps of your fathers. And you will experience every bit of rejection, every bit of discipline, all the way up to being removed from the land just like they did. See, these are people that have been given wonderful promises, precious promises. Promises that talk about not only restoration, but restoration to a glorious hope that they could barely even imagine. But how did chapter 6 end? You remember? All of this will come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. There's no blessing without obedience, and obedience is not just a matter of doing the things. Obedience is driven by a changed and transformed heart. See, God's not eliminating the sacrifices. God's not eliminating the priesthood here. God's not eliminating the law that he called them to live under. God is calling them back to the heart of the law in the first place. Be holy as I am holy. 
Circumcise your hearts. Cut away the dead old self that you continually fall into serving and pursue me. What he's saying is that all those things on their own, religious and devoted as they might be, can be evaluated as being eternally worthless if they're not careful. But when they're done right, they are precious. When the feasts, when the festivals, when the sacrifices were pursued with humility, with compassion, with worship, they were precious things. They bound the people together. They made them a soft and tender and caring people. It brought real covering for their sins. See, those weren't bad things. They were just worthless if you pursued them with the wrong heart. And so God is calling them back to be a people who live like the God that they serve. And as we turn the page to chapter 8, what we've seen over and over in the Minor Prophets plays out again, that God delivers warnings, stern warnings, difficult warnings to his people, but that he balances that and follows that up with hope, with these precious promises for their future. And that's what chapter 8 is. It's a promise for their future. He's pointed to the fact that their hearts often look like their failed fathers, but he's going to point forward and say that that's not the end. And as he makes these promises, they center around their worship. The very thing that they struggled to do with a radically transformed heart is what these promises deal with. So chapter 8 opens with the promise itself. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I'm jealous for her with great wrath. Once again, God says he is jealous for his people. Not sinful jealousy, that is desiring what rightfully belongs to someone else. But this is God's rightful possession. God has this burning desire, this passionate desire for his people and for his place. And so he makes these wonderful promises. And this, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Jerusalem has been called a lot of things. Jerusalem has been a cursed city. Jerusalem has been an unfaithful city. Jerusalem has been an overcome and an overthrown city. Jerusalem has been a ruined city. But there's a time coming when Jerusalem will be characterized as a faithful city. Jerusalem has never been known as a particularly faithful place. But there's a time coming when they're not just going to be physically restored like we've seen in the other prophecies, but when they are going to be transformed and restored in their worship. That mountain of the Lord, Zion, that holy mountain is once again going to be called holy. Why is it holy? It's holy because the Lord himself will dwell among his people there. That is what makes it set apart is the presence of the Lord. And there's some question about, again, when this comes. Uh, does this talk about God dwelling among his people in the church? Uh, does this look forward to the new Jerusalem and kind of this final eternal state? And I think the context uh, really answers that and makes it pretty clear that this is talking about a time of real physical restoration under a real physical rule of the Messiah in a real physical kingdom. Because it's not just talking about a people, it's talking about a specific place. There's a reason that God keeps driving this back to a very particular geography. God has called for himself a people, and God has set, set apart, sanctified for himself a place. And look at what verse 4 says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city will be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. 
It's not just people, it's people in the most vulnerable life stages, the very young and the very old. Now, if you translate this to being heaven, the eternal state, how many of you are looking forward to a heaven where you have to have a staff because of your great age? I'm not. That's a renewed, transformed body that's there. This is talking about a physical place with real people who give birth and grow up and age in some ways very much like the reality we live in now, but in very significant ways absolutely different because there's a reign of a righteous king during that time. Verse 7 says that he will save them from the east and from the west country, and that is interesting because where was the exile to Babylon seen as from? From the north. This is actually pointing to a different scattering that appears to be yet to come and a different gathering of the people that is yet to come. But that's what he says. I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. In their rebellion, the people were scattered. They will be gathered together in faithfulness and righteousness. And in verses 9 and 10, he reminds the people that in their rebellion, he dealt with them in discipline. But look at what he promises in verse 11. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. Instead of discipline, God is going to bring blessing, not only a rebuilt city, not only a regathered people, but a refreshed and restored land and people. And he says the vine will give its fruit. He says, the ground will give its produce, the heavens will give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. This restored, renewed remnant of the people will possess a restored, renewed land. That's the promise. After the warning about their failed worship, after the call to examine their heart, he propels them into the future and says, there's a time when I will change your heart. Because remember, the people could never change their own heart. Even Moses saw that back in the law. The call to circumcise, to change your heart, but he always said, you can't do it. You can't do this on your own. That's why that new covenant promise was needed, that God would remove that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And he says that time is coming after a history of rebellion and rejection, after a history of failure and failed worship. There's a time coming when God is going to restore his wayward people. And when he does, they are going to see a peace and a prosperity and a renewal that is unlike anything in their history and unlike anything they could imagine. But why? Discipline makes sense, doesn't it? The discipline of God makes sense. God said, this is the covenant that I make with you. Be faithful to obey it. And if you obey it, I will bless you. But if you fail, you will find yourself consistently living under my discipline. He called them to it. They said, all that the Lord says we will do. And generation after generation produces nothing but failure. And so discipline comes and discipline makes sense. It's logical. It follows. What doesn't make sense is the promise of restoration unless we really understand the why behind it. What's the purpose of God restoring and renewing these people? It's not just because he's nice. It's not just because he feels bad about what happens to them. All of this is done to prove the perfect faithfulness of God to every promise that he's made. He restores his people because he is perfectly faithful. And these promises of restoration, they actually point us back to the nature and to the character of God. Promises that he made to Abraham. Promises that he made to David. Promises that he made to Israel under the new covenant. That is what all of this looks forward to. God is going to move in faithfulness to those promises. 
Because what did he promise? Let's just take the Abrahamic covenant. What did God promise Abraham? He promised him a people, a seed, numerous, like the stars in the sky, like the sand on the seashore. And he's going to restore that people out of a broken and ruined remnant. What else did he promise Abraham? He promised him a land, him and his descendants, a land. And in Genesis, it says it's an eternal possession. Not one that's here if you're good and removed if you're bad. It's an eternal possession for those people. And what do we keep reading? That God is going to restore to them this land. What else did he promise Abraham? Blessing. I will bless you. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And how often have we seen through the minor prophets that the people are blessed and that as those nations come against them, God comes against those nations. He curses those people that curse his people. But what else does he say? And through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And absolutely we see that in Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, who freely offers salvation to all men through his sacrifice on the cross. But you know what else we see as we move through the minor prophets? We see God accomplish this promise that Israel will be a source and a conduit of blessing to all the nations as they finally carry out their role as a kingdom of priests. Verse 13, as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you and you will be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. God is going to save them and bless them as a testimony to his faithfulness, but he is also going to save them and restore them so that they might be a blessing to the nations. And that progression, that's the focus of the rest of chapter 8. It's how God moves them from discipline to blessing. Verse 14, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. God was faithful to discipline his wayward people. In his perfect justice, he will deal with sin wherever it's found, even among his people. But that was not the final purpose. Now he has purposed to do good to them, to Judah and Jerusalem. Not just a people once again, but a place. And that good is going to be evidenced by a changed people. Speak truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and that make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Notice that language of love and hate there. That's what a changed heart produces. Loving the things that God loves and hating the things that God hates. A heart that mirrors God's heart is not all love at the expense of tolerance of everything. Genuine love that mirrors the love of God loves the righteous and the right and hates the vile and the offensive. Those times of mourning those times of fasting that drove their question, he now returns to answer. Look at verse 19. Thus says, I'm sorry, verse, yeah, verse 19. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth month and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth, all those fasts that you came up with, that you began to commemorate the destruction, all of those things shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Those memories of sorrow, of loss, of rejection and discipline, they're going to give way to celebrations of joy. The brokenness, the failure, and the rejection of the past is going to be replaced by the memorial of God's faithfulness and the joy that that brings about in the life of his people. See, when they turn, when God restores, 
their fasting is going to be turned into feasting. And again, you have to see the reversal of what this is. In Amos, there's a reason that the minor prophets are so progressive in the way that they deal with this. In Amos, God says, I'm going to turn your fasts or your feasts into fasts. I'm going to turn your joy into mourning. And now we see that in the restoration, God reverses those things. And then he says, therefore, love truth and peace. How often through this chapter have we heard things like, fear not, strengthen your hands, fear not, love truth and peace. There's these constant little applications that because these things are true, they ought to change the way you live. Prophecy is never for the sake of prophecy. Prophecy is never for the sake of satisfying intellectual curiosity. Prophecy is never for the sake of winning an argument. Prophecy is meant to, and prophecy demands a change in the people that it's given to. It drives us toward worship because prophecy reminds us that there is a God, high, holy, and powerful, who holds the future in his hands, and that God is worthy of our worship. And prophecy also drives us toward obedience because if that is what we're anticipating, a future with this great and glorious and holy God, then how much more so ought we to be that kind of people right now? And then he looks forward to this wonderful day in verse 20, and he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another, saying, Let us go at once and entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. There's a time when the nations, the inhabitants of many cities, will know where the Lord dwells, and they will come to seek his favor. It's not just that the word of God will go out, it's that people will come in because they recognize the king and where the king is. This isn't just some obscure promise in the middle of Zechariah. This is the consistent promise of the prophets. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, many people will go and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go out of Zion, and the Lord's word from Jerusalem. It's in Isaiah 66, it's in Jeremiah, it's in Ezekiel, it's in Micah, that people are going to come to where the Lord is. Well, doesn't that mean the church? Doesn't that mean that as God saves uh, people from every tribe and tongue and nation through the power of the gospel as they join themselves to the Lord? Isn't that what's happening? Uh, I don't think the context allows that. If the language is going to maintain any kind of consistent meaning, then it absolutely can't point to just a church gathering because it's talking about people's it's talking about a place. It's talking about cities. In verse 22, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and entreat the favor of the Lord, a time when there's not only people, but there's nations, and not only nations, but strong nations. How many strong nations existing today move themselves toward Jerusalem in the fear of the Lord? None of them. Strong nations find their strength in being strong nations. There's a time coming when kings will bow before the king of kings. And look at 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, in these final days, in these days of the restoration of Jerusalem and Judah, in these days where the Lord of hosts dwells in the midst of his people, in those days, ten men from among the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. Israel goes from being a curse among the nations to being what draws the nations to their God. It's this picture of the nations clinging to the robe of a Jewish person saying, show us 
where your God dwells. Take us to your leader, but in all of the right contexts and senses. And I want you to see the balance, the bookends that Zechariah set up for us here. It's really beautiful. How did chapter 7 start? Two men from the little town of Bethel coming to entreat the face and the favor of the Lord. How does this section end? Strong nations, men from every tribe and tongue and language, drawing near to Jerusalem to entreat the favor and the wisdom of the Lord. It's a beautiful picture of what was and what will yet be. So for the end of today, as we wrap up, I want us to consider the heart behind the holidays. These people came to God with a question. Should we continue celebrating our traditional fasts as a memorial to what has come before? And God's answer isn't as specific as they might have liked. He says that fasts without heart are worthless. But by the way, so is eating. In choosing to do for you, whether you fast or whether you feast, you actually don't do anything for me. Now, we might not have fasts that we keep, although maybe some of us should consider that. But we are a people of tradition. We are smack dab in the middle of a time of year that is uh, full of tradition. We have traditional decorations. We sing traditional songs. We light traditional candles. We hold traditional services. But it's more than just December, isn't it? We are a people who are driven by habit. And coming to church can become a family tradition. Serving in Sunday school, giving that first Sunday of the month, singing those songs that we love, those can all be nothing more than doing what we've always done. And there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. In fact, there is great beauty in tradition that moves us back and connects us with who we have been and who we are as a people. There's great value in doing obedient things on an ongoing basis. But this is a wonderful time of year to ask why. To separate ourselves from the distraction even that tradition can be and to really honestly evaluate the heart behind why we do what we do. To check our hearts for obedience instead of just habit. Three things for us to think about as we go today. First of all, let's think about an acceptable sacrifice. What does Paul in Romans 12 call us to be? He calls us to be living sacrifices. When he writes to the Corinthians, but why do we do the good things that we do? See, it's so sneaky. Sometimes the good things can be so sneaky because they become the vehicle for worshiping self in a way that looks really good and acceptable and even makes me feel pretty worshipful on the outside. But it's so deceptive because I put self in there so often. All of our wonderful theological songs, all of our expository preaching, all of our Bible studies, all of our Awana meetings, all of our small groups, all of our giving, 
that might all wind up being worth nothing in the final evaluation if it's not done with a heart of worship and obedience. Second, we have to be a people who consider what it means to love and to hate. Very, very often uh, in counseling, uh, we're talking through things that people are struggling with, and we tend to want to make it more complicated. What does obedience to God look like? What, what will it look like to live a life that reflects obedience to God? Yeah, there are 10,000 ways that that plays itself out, but practically I think it's very easy to boil it down to this. Do you love what God loves, and do you hate what God hates? Because we're people that like to put a lot of gray area in that. I do love what God loves, and I hate the real bad stuff that God hates, but then I have this big, mushy, gray center mass uh, that, you know, God might not love, but it's probably okay, right? Obedience is driven by a love, a consuming passion for what God calls good, right, and acceptable, and by a rejection of what God calls hateful. And finally... Moving from mourning to joy. Do you look back on your life and do you remember seasons of failure? I can look back on my life and I'm probably not alone in this. And some of the most significant things that stick out in my mind are those times when I fell flat on my face. The dates that I remember sometimes are those dates of real pain and tragedy, and if I'm honest, most of them are the ones that I've caused. How do we move past that? How do we move past failure, even real, significant failure? Because it's more than just a matter of saying, I'll forget it and move on. God forgives it, so wipe it away and don't even think of it again. And that is true. In God's forgiveness, he separates us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. That is a blessed truth of the gospel that we better not forget. But I remember. I came across a wonderful quote this week. It's long, but I'm going to read it because I think it's tremendously valuable. A man named F.B. Meyer wrote this. He says, this is God's way still. He chastens us sorely. If we profane his name and pollute his temple, if we strike hands in an unholy alliance and go after strange gods, if we dye our hands in the vats of the world's vanity, we are sent as Israel was into captivity, and our 70 years are fulfilled. But when we've profited by his stern discipline and returned to him with all our heart and soul, we are returned to our former position. God's hand wipes the tears from our eyes, and he bids us turn from our bitter repinings over an irretrievable past to accept the unalloyed mercy that remembers our sin no more. He set himself to assure his people, in effect, that in the future, when they could view his dealings in their true perspective, they would discover that their darkest days had been the source and origin of their gladdest ones. If you need to read that more slowly, I'll send it out to you. I can print it for you. Turning us from our bitter repinings over an irretrievable past. There are failures in my past that, from my perspective, are irretrievable and unreconcilable. 
And in the face of those failures, it's God's unalloyed mercy that remembers our sins no more and says that our darkest days are the source of our greatest joy. Because in the depths of our failure, how brilliant is the forgiveness, the redemption, and the restoration of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, it is a remarkable thing to be called the people of God. To be a people with a hope because you are faithful. To be a people who can offer acceptable worship, not because we're acceptable or even particularly worshipful, but because you've cleansed us and you've renewed us and you've remade us. And so God, as we study these passages, we are reminded that you will be faithful to your every promise to Israel. And because you have always been faithful, we know that you'll be faithful to us as well. Lord, we rejoice in the wonder of your forgiveness. We long for and anticipate the fullness of our restoration and reconciliation when we are face to face before you. And we know that because you are good and because you are God, you will do all of this for your glory. And so in this season and in every season, draw our hearts to acceptable worship. Let us be a people who bring you good gifts sacrifices and offerings of praise, lives laid down in sacrifice for you and in love for others. We love you, Lord. Purify us, cleanse us, and make us proclaimers of the gospel until you come. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.